bitch. I don't want to hear your shit. I don't need you to keep time for me, Metronome. I'm not a musician, so stop musician at me. I'm moving through time on my own, Metronome. <laughs> I'm Jenna. And I'm Khadija. Welcome to the Ghouls and Galdem podcast. We've created this space for fans of the horror noir film genre that crave nuanced representation and commentary. From the perspectives of Black women, Black storytellers, and Black horror fans, who geek out and freak out over anything that gets us gooped and spooked. episode we are talking about Candyman. check our episode description for content and trigger warnings if your head or your heart requires that information and of course there will be many spoilers ahead this entire podcast is built on the premise of spoiling things for people so if you're the type of person who doesn't want to have the ending of a movie ruined for you I'm sorry, you've come to the wrong place. Guanin. Guansa. So, Candyman is a 1992 horror thriller. A ghost story. A boogeyman tale. It's directed by Bernard Rose, written by Clive Barker, and adapted from his short novel, The Forbidden. The original story is based off of two urban legends, The Hook Hand Man and Bloody Mary. I feel like we've all been introduced to Bloody Mary in like the second grade yeah. when some sixth grader is like, I dare you to go into that bathroom and say Bloody Mary's name three times. <laughs> like, I don't know her. I don't know her. Is she late? <laughs> I've said it about 10 times and she hasn't occurred anywhere. <laughs> so Barker's story is set in a poor estate in England. Bernard Rose actually came up with the idea to make the story about social issues about race in America, specifically with the history of how black people have been treated in America. Fun fact about that, the bonfire at Caprini Green was a nod to the UK roots of the story. In The Forbidden, it would have been around the time of Guy Fawkes Day. You even see a Guy Fawkes mask hanging on the wall in Helen's apartment. Cool. Mm-hmm, right? Candyman stars Tony Todd as the title character, Virginia Madsen as Helen Lyle, Xavier Barkley as Trevor Lyle, and Cassie Lemons as Bernadette Walsh. So here we go. This is how it starts. Helen Lyle is a grad student studying urban legends and folklore. She and her classmate Bernadette Walsh are interviewing people at the University of Chicago, where they hear about the infamous Candyman. Sidebar for that one, Helen's husband, Trevor Lyle, is a professor at the university, but... We'll learn all about Trevor shortly, soon enough. Straight up trash panda. <laughs> I said we'll rip him later, okay, bro. Okay, okay. Okay, what was I saying? Mm. As the legend goes, you say Candyman's name five times in the mirror, he appears, you get murked. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Before he was a murderous urban legend, Daniel Robitaille, a.k.a. Candyman, was the son of a former slave who became wealthy after inventing a shoemaking machine during the Civil War period. There's something to say about bringing up the black bourgeoisie, free people in this time period, because we don't really see it a lot. But when it is seen, you know, it's appreciated. Mm -hmm, Definitely, because... (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, even racists need shoes. I guess so. <laughs> so he receives a lot of business, and little baby Candyman grew up rubbing elbows with high society folks. That's code for white people, y'all. Mm-hmm. You already know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. <laughs> Don't 
Candyman was also a great artist who also did self-portraits. So this rich white landowner asked him to paint a picture of his daughter. One thing leads to another, and she gets pregnant. <laughs> and we all know where this leads for a black man who even breathes in the direction of a white woman at that point in history, and sometimes even to date. Facts are facts. Let's be real. Don't forget it. Uh, so this rich white landowner pays pays a, an entire lynch mob yes. to capture Candyman. At least more than 12. That's a lot of people That's to a pay. Lot of people. That's but- that's petty, bro. That's real petty. <laughs> so check it. With this lynch mob, they strip him down, oh. cut off his painting hand. Oh, gosh. And then rub him up in honey. Oh. Then they roll him up in bees. Oh. Right? It's a lot, man. And then they burn his ass up. And then even to be more petty about the situation, they take his ashes and they spread it all over what is now in this time slot. Cabrini Green and present day. So, so he's a ghost of the ghetto. He's a ghost of the ghetto. Ghetto. All right, back to the main plot. After a long day of interviewing people, Helen Lyle is going over her notes mm-hmm. in an empty classroom at the university, and she's joined by one of the cleaning ladies, Kitty Culver, who happens to be one of the many black supporting characters in the film who basically just serve to enhance the leading white character's trajectory. Many. There's a lot of those. Kitty tells Helen that her friend Henrietta Mosley had a friend who overheard a gruesome murder that took place at Cabrini Green Projects, supposedly by the hand of Candyman. Don't you mean by the hook? Why do you say things like this? <laughs> it's too easy! You know what? Sure, sure. By the hook. Take it. Thank you. You're welcome. So... <laughs> Helen does the stereotypical thing that white characters in the horror genre have been known to do when they hear about a gruesome murder. They go run into the side of the crime to check it for themselves. Let me tell you something. Black people don't do this. No. Okay? They stay away. Which is why she had to drag her friend Bernadette with her to the Cabrini Green Projects. And you know what? Sometimes I'm kind of confused about Bernie's trajectory because... Mm -hmm. She's also a grad student Mm -hmm. and is doing the same or maybe even more work than what Helen is doing on their thesis paper. But you know what? Whatever. It's obviously it's she's a sidebar sidekick to Helen's shenanigans. So mm. it's an odd combination because like Helen's over here playing Scooby Doo while Bernie is trying to get their thesis paper published. Right. She's never really there when Helen goes to Cabrini Green. Mm -hmm. Actually, she goes once and then never again. Mm -hmm. Fun fact. The role of Bernadette was originally supposed to be played by Virginia Madsen. Mm. Alexandra Pig was in the role of Helen until she became pregnant. It's worth mentioning also that Alexandra Pig was married to Bernard Rose at the time. And mm. she really wanted Virginia Madsen to take the role since she couldn't do it herself. Ooh, that's nice. I know. Give friends it to your friends. friends. Which is true, because remember when you gave me the role in, in Specimen? Because you couldn't do it. It's true. Actors helping actors. Friends helping friends. Ooh, yay! Because <laughs> we all, we all, we all want to do something. That's basically it. That's our mandate. We, we just want to do something. We just want to be working and happy and want to see our friends working and happy too. Okay. If Virginia Madsen hadn't agreed to take the role, Sandra Bullock would have gotten the offer next. What? Yeah, right? Imagine that. If we didn't, you know, but think about that. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't have had speed. We wouldn't have had speed because this was 
because Candyman was filmed in 92. Mm-hmm. Speed didn't come out until 94. Sandra Bullock was still relatively unknown at the time. So mm-hmm. who knows what would have happened? Who would have been next to Keanu Reeves in that bus? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> it would have been Virginia Madsen. It would have been Virginia Madsen. <laughs> uh, while we're on casting, we wouldn't have actually gotten Tony Todd for Candyman. Who they were looking at in the beginning, they are actually looking at Eddie Murphy. What? Ain't that a trip, though? My girl wants to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. We wouldn't have got... Would we have gotten that? No, we wouldn't have if he did this. Because then he wouldn't... Wouldn't he have done the latest? Whatever. Either way, he didn't get it. But the only reason why he didn't get it, though... He's just too short. Mm. He's 5'9", which isn't short. That's not short. That's average height for a man. But check it. Tony Todd is 6'5". Swish, swish. I guess when you're casting a villain in a movie, you want someone that's going to be like looming and menacing. And menacing, exactly. Because Tony Todd being a 6'5 man, like that's a big man. Uh, with Casey Lemons, they had dropped the idea of casting a white actor in that role. And I think that change might have come after Bernard Rose spoke with the NAACP. Bernard Rose rightfully had some reservations about the portrayal of black characters in the film. So he wanted to get the NAACP's seal of approval. (laughs) I want to know what he asked them. Like, how would that have gone? Like, hello, black civilians. Let me pick your brain. Tell me all your black things. <laughs> well, you know, it makes sense. I'm glad he went and spoke to the NAACP. It mm-hmm. makes sense that he would want to avoid making the same mistakes as other white directors who tried their hand at portraying black characters in the horror genre. The character yeah. of Bernadette becomes the sacrifice for Helen to move forward in her own story. And I wonder if they even notice because they do acknowledge the topics of race and poverty throughout the film. Mm-hmm. But when you still end up using black characters as cannon fodder, it gets a bit much. 100%. So although they tried to do their due diligence and probably had the best of intentions, it's just the same old ignorance that we run into with some of these movies but you know what that's neither here nor there no and i'll add to that too because like check this part because remember in um that scene in the film where helen and bernadette are actually heading over to the projects Mm -hmm. and like there is dangerous period like there's no getting around it (laughs) so bernadette brings like protection with her like a little taser and like maybe some mace and helen starts questioning her on like why she did that like oh what what's with the arsenal bernadette (laughs) Are you trying to scare me, Bernadette? Right? And I'm like, what are you doing, girl? Like, this is the 90s. Check it. You're a woman. I mean, as much as we hate to admit it, but like, yeah. 90s weren't good. They Mm -hmm. weren't good for anyone. And then you're in Chicago during the 90s. If they call Chicago Chirac now, then what was it like before? Exactly. And And the crime rates have gone down since the 90s. It was, like, skyrocketing at that point. Right. And so, like, I don't understand what Bernadette's supposed to do. Is she supposed to, like, take in consideration that Helen's going to save her if somebody comes rolling up on him? No. She's not. She's not. <sighs> Cheeses me. <laughs> but you know what? Back to the story, because that's the most important part. But the warning that comes with Cabrini Green is that it's a hot spot for murder. That's exactly why Bernadette was coming strapped up. Yeah. Right? So at Cabrini Green Projects, they meet Anne-Marie McCoy, who was the neighbor to Ruthie Jean, a young woman who got snatched up by the candy man. The plot line of Ruthie Jean's murder is actually based on a real life incident. Mm-hmm. 
A 52-year-old woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy was shot to death in her apartment by someone that climbed through a hole in the wall behind her medicine cabinet. Ruthie Mae called 911 to report that someone had quote-unquote throwed the cabinet down and was breaking into her apartment. And Ruthie Mae possibly suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and she was black, so the police completely disregarded her when she called 911 to report the break-in. Two other neighbors called 911 and reported hearing gunshots, but when the police showed up, they didn't even enter her apartment. That's disrespect! Right. And it wasn't until two days later when they returned to her apartment that they discovered her rotting body inside. That's, yeah. a, that's a huge middle finger up from the police, and it's right in line with the general response to poverty and crime in the projects of Chicago in the 80s and 90s, like we were saying before. Exactly. So... Anne-Marie tells Helen and Bernadette what life at Cabrini Green is all about. And that Candyman will cut you if you keep playing like you're playing. (laughs) Again, Helen doesn't really listen. Of course. She does the most logical thing one could possibly think of. She goes home to her apartment. (laughs) Lights the incense. She doesn't really light incense. You sure? But no, she doesn't. But that black musk or ebony musk? What are those? That vampire blood. (laughs) Okay, she doesn't like no incense, but let's imagine that she does. Okay. She sets the mood in her bathroom and convinces Bernadette that they have to try saying Candyman's name in the mirror. Oh, yeah. So they're giggling and kiki in the mirror being like, let's summon a demon. <laughs> okay, so Helen says Candyman's name five times in the mirror. But Bernadette don't play that game. She don't say it. She doesn't say it. But she's smart. Bernie knows... <laughs> Not to play with Candyman. That's instincts, my guy. (laughs) But Helen disregards all of the warnings from the black supporting characters. Of course. And it causes a whole mess. Mm -hmm. Bernie, the cleaning ladies, Kitty and and Henrietta. Yep. And Jake, who we're about to meet. Mm -hmm. At this point, she's obsessed. And and that obsession just turns into her exploiting black drama. Facts! (laughs) So, like, Helen goes digging. And finds out that the building she lives in was once a housing project. I want to make a joke about gentrification, but I don't have one. Because gentrification isn't funny. <laughs> it's just it's just canvas bags and juice. <laughs> I like juice. I like canvas bags. But I don't like them in the same place at the same time. I also don't like juice that costs $17. No. Like, what's in it? Like, never mind. Gentrification sucks. <laughs> so... Helen explains to Bernadette that the layout of her apartment is actually the exact same as the Caprini Green Projects. Mm -hmm. She leads her to her bathroom, and then she pops open the medicine cabinet to show that it leads to the apartment next door. So Helen basically thinks she's slick (laughs) and thinks she's cracked the case. At this point, Helen decides to go back for round two at Cabrini Green to talk to Anne-Marie some more. That's when she meets a little boy named Jake, who also knows about Candyman. Mm -hmm. This little boy Jake is minding his own business, roaming the halls of his building, fully unsupervised. (laughs) His mom was probably working three jobs just to make ends meet, let's be real. Yeah, latchkey kids are real. These people were living in poverty. Yeah. Helen tries to convince the boy to tell her what he knows about Candyman, and he takes her to a public bathroom on the building grounds where a local boy had been murdered by Candyman. Out of nowhere, Jake gets run up on by this big dude in a trench coat. And he's like, oh shit, it's Candyman. It's not really Candyman. Jake's like, she's in there. You can't see me pointing, but I'm pointing to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, because it it was a setup thing. He just ratted her out. 
Who cares? I would have done it too. I would have done it too. Why, who cares about Helen? I would have ratted her out too. Because she's in the bathroom. She's snooping around. Like, what are you looking for? <laughs> I don't know. Like, what does she think? She's going to find a body? Like, it's not a fresh crime scene, There's dude. nothing fresh about it. It's covered in graffiti and dookie. <laughs> like, someone actually wrote sweets to the sweet in dookie on the bathroom wall. Dookie sweets. Ew! <laughs> It's funny <laughs> until you realize this is a quote that we come back to several times throughout the film. It's not always written in shit, though. <laughs> Thank goodness. All right. While Helen is taking photos of the graffiti dookie, the fake candy man that ran up on Jake... Runs up on Helen! They brutalize her. Like, it's bad. She almost loses an eye. Yeah, big man has a hook for her hand. Like, that's a charge. At least one. So poor Helen ends up at a police station where she identifies her attacker in a police lineup. It's not lost on me that she receives justice with the quickness. Quickest of quickness. And at the expense of Jake's trust because she promised him that she wouldn't tell anyone what he told her about Candyman. We don't, we don't play that game. We don't play that game, Helen. The cops end up telling Helen that her attacker is the same man that murdered Ruthie Jean. And that likely he was the person who murdered the little boy as well. Basically, Jake's a hero. Jake Jake actually cracked the case. Yeah, here. he is my hero. <laughs> After some time, Bernadette meets up with Helen and gives her the photos that she thought were lost in the gang attack. She tells Helen that they're finally going to publish their thesis on the Candyman legend. They're gaining public interest because of Helen's attack. You know... Even bad press is good press. Mm-hmm. NWA said it best. <laughs> Ain't nothing to fuck with. But this is where we hear Helen acknowledge her privilege. She knows the response she gets from the police after being attacked is because she's a white woman. She Columbuses the Candyman's hold over the Caprini Green projects, and it keeps her motivated to pursue the story even further. So Helen's all excited, you know. She's gassed up because she's about to get published. She's walking to her car. She hears some whispers, and then lo and behold, who other than the Candyman is standing in the shadows of the underground parking lot waiting for her. He tells her, You were not content with the story, so I had to come. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It's so hot, though. <laughs> it's low-key. It's low-key like, really hot. It's, it's low-key like, like BDSM kind of hot. Listen, Tony Todd looks good. He's so Look, Tony Todd looks good so in this smooth. movie. And like when he first appears as Candyman and he's standing there in his, all of his six foot five frame with that long duster. Yeah. And just like. So fuzzy. You know. So soft. You look good, sir. Right. You look good. Okay. So, so he came for her. He came for he her. came for her. Because you know what? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, <laughs> Helen. She called him. She should have lost his number. So Candyman tells Helen that because she keeps talking shit about his legends, he must shed innocent blood. <laughs> so Helen becomes entranced and blacks out. Actually, they hypnotize Virginia Madsen in this scene which is, like, a little weird to do that to an actor. And low-key, the union should have had her back on that one. I can't imagine being on set and having a director say to me, um, so we're actually going to hypnotize you right now. No. I'd be like, no. 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 How, like, what, how long is this? Like, how long am I going to be, like, am I going to, like, hear a word and then, like, 
red rum myself or like Manjurian candidate and be like, the ace of spades. Like, I don't know. I don't want that. I don't trust anyone enough to let them hypnotize me. Right? I can't. I, no, no, no. Just no. So after meeting Candyman for the first time, Helen wakes up in Anne Marie's apartment. They jump time a bit. She's lying there covered in blood. The dog in Anne-Marie's apartment has been butchered yes. and her little baby Anthony is gone. So, you know, Anne-Marie sees Helen in the middle of this scene and she she wipes the floor with her. She, like, there's so many times where she just takes Helen's head and just goes like, doof, doof, doof. Just, <laughs> it's, she's like, I, I would have done the same thing. I like, know. imagine waking up, your dog is dead, your baby's gone, Not and even- this woman... Not even just dead. She cut, like, the head is cut off. It's gone. That was a Rottweiler. <laughs> that was, that, a, it was not like it was a little dog either. That was a, that, you're right. That was a Rottie. That was a big dog. She's that's like, that's terrifying. my protection. And that's she's terrifying. like, no, decapitate. Oh my gosh. I mean, we all know, like, if you've seen the movie, you know that it wasn't actually Helen that did this. No, I know. But I'm just right? saying. But which still. is brutal, which is brutal, which is the brutal part of the story. That's the one thing that makes me feel bad for Helen. She wakes up in Anne Marie's apartment. The dog's dead. Baby's gone. Anne Marie's whooping her ass. And the police come in just after Helen manages to chop Anne Marie with a meat cleaver. <laughs> Interesting choice of weapon. <laughs> but she ends up getting stripped and booked immediately. And damned if she doesn't ask to speak to the manager. Check this one more. I'm going to do a dramatic reenactment, reenactment of this. Okay. Can I please speak to Detective Lentil? Miss Lyle, you're under arrest. Do you understand? I was attacked. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because if damn do we be, if some random, I was attacked. I'm like, girl, you you also cut her. You, you were literally caught red-handed. I mean, like, it points to the many issues with the justice system where someone who is innocent is being just like pushed through the system, but like the evidence points to Helen being the one that did this. Mm-hmm. Even it's sad. You no, know. there's nothing you can do. Be like, ooh, a ghost did it. I'm like, nah. I mean, yeah. If it can't work for us, she it's not gonna work failure. for you. She set up for failure. She set up for failure. Poor Helen. Poor, poor Helen. Mm-hmm. You know what? While she's in jail. She wastes her one phone call on her husband, Trevor, his busted ass. Yep. She calls him at 3 a.m. She, she's like, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. She asks the, the police officer, 3 a.m., and this man can't answer the phone because he's somewhere other than his own damn bed. But the next morning, Trevor finally shows up looking well-rested. He takes Helen home where, she, where she, she starts looking through the photos that Bernie saved from the, from the attack at Cabrini Green. And she notices that Candyman is in some of the photos with her. Candyman shows up at Helen's apartment again and sinks his hook into her. Just as Bernie comes to the door and hears Helen's whimpering in pain, you know, and of course she's going to come and help her girl. So she barges in and save, and tries to save her and Candyman mashes her up. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's uh, why, again, we've questioned this, but keep <sighs> going, Bernadette. So Helen blacks out again and gets booked for Bernie's murder. And like, duh. Were you thinking that Bernie was going to stick around for the whole movie? I don't know what you were thinking, but I knew. That's so sad. R.I.P. Bernie. We don't miss you, girl. Right. 
You know, this is twice now that Candyman has framed Helen for murder. It's a toxic ass relationship. <laughs> it's like like the most. It, this is the original Dirty John. <laughs> so Helen is taken to a psychiatric hospital and is knocked out for like about a month. Yeah, about a month. She doesn't even realize she's been in there that long. And she's being evaluated by her psychiatrist, Dr. Burke, who Helen tries to prove her innocence to by summoning Candyman. In no time flat, Candyman appears and is elbow deep in Dr. Burke. He guts the good doctor and then escapes through the window, which is like low-key random. Yeah, like he's a ghost. Like he could have just vanished into thin air. You know what? I think he's just being extra. He well, just had to find a way out. You know what? Let him be extra because his extraness gives Helen the chance to escape right through the window that he just busted up and walks her little ass home. <laughs> she just wants to be reunited with her husband. So in case you forgot, Trevor's Helen's husband. <laughs> you know? He's kind of that professor that's really into his work. And by work, I mean... Blonde, bright-eyed freshman. Yeah. Trevor's a chode. Imagine this. You break out of a mental hospital. Do it all the time. (laughs) You're being chased by a ghost. You get home expecting your husband is going to be there to help you, only to find his little ass playing house with Stacy. Okay, let's go for Stacy now. Round, okay. Okay, so check this. This is the same Stacy you caught him making eyes mm. with and getting fresh with mm. in his classroom. Mm. Ooh, freshman, getting mm. fresh. That's kind of funny. <laughs> the same Stacy who tried to act stink when her professor, not husband, not boyfriend, not man, professor's wife, Shows up to visit him at his work? Trifling. I don't get it. Trifling. Why are you so mad for? Trifling. Why are you mad for? Stacy was repainting the walls of the home she helped wreck because she didn't do it alone. No. No, she didn't. She was up in that bitch with buckets of pink paint. Not enough for just an accent wall, but the whole apartment, man. (laughs) I do wonder, though, because at one point he comes out in his, like, bathrobe and she's painting, and I wonder if... He was literally like taking a shower while she while she was painting. Like like he was just like, oh yeah, you know it's a project for you. Keep you busy. It's like giving a rattle to a baby. That's really creepy because she it's basically a baby. She's a baby. Oh oh. But we're not gonna go there. We're not gonna go there because Helen just realizes that Trevor's waste, and so she runs back to Cabrini Green. It's like her home now. (laughs) It's all she has left. (laughs) They're coming for you, Barbara. They're coming for you, Helen. <laughs> so, back at Cabrini Green, Helen sees Candyman and he tells her that the only way little baby Anthony can be saved is if she gives herself to him. And he offers her immortality and seduces her. She's kind of into it. Until she pulls her hand back from rubbing on his chest and sees that it's covered in bees. <laughs> He's covered in bees, dog. <laughs> but despite this, they share a very unsexy open mouth <laughs> kiss and swap bees. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just... And the funny thing about this is that Tony Todd actually came up with the bees in the mouth bit. Cool. Right? So Who wants to volunteer to put bees in their mouth, though? Tony Todd. Well, I guess so. Tony Todd. <laughs> this this man's just like, I think the ambiance calls for more bees. <laughs> All of the bees. 
And the production had him actually use a dental dam to prevent bees from going down his throat or well, and ears or anything like that. It's like the least you could do, I guess. I know, right? And they used, um, in the production, they used 12-hour-old baby bees for the scene um, so the sting wouldn't be as harsh. Mm. And Tony Todd even had a sting bonus. Check that out. For every bee sting, he received $1,000. Damn! And he was stung 23 times in total. Damn! So think about that, and then on top of your already paycheck, oh like the God. man-made guap. That's some guap, man. I mean, I feel like I would. I don't know many actors, unless you've got like a severe allergy. I don't know many actors that would say no to that. Actually, Virginia Madsen. I was reading that she almost turned down the role because she was deterred by the presence of the bees. Right? Mm-hmm. She she has a wasp allergy, uh-huh. and when she uh, she said to Bernard Rose, uh, I guess at some point that that she. She has an allergy. She didn't want to do the film. Bernard Rose was like, you don't have an allergy. You're scared. So she went and she got tested, got tested for all these different types of wasp and bee stings um, and discovered that she's most allergic to wasps. And so, like, I guess the bees, the baby bees were not going to be as bad, as big of a deal for her. So she was like, you know, like most actors, she did it. You, she did it. Who's gonna say no to good, good money? No, no. And like she is, she is the lead. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tear it down either. It's just like you're just afraid. You're just afraid. I'm like, bro. I know you're into making movies like this, but like, you can take it down a notch. It's true. It's true. Also, beasting suck. I'm sorry. If somebody ever felt uncomfortable about a beasting, I'd be like, I get it. I don't like pain either. I had a wasp sting me on my lip a couple of summers ago and it was one of the most excruciating moments of pain in my life. The temple. I got stung in the temple when I was like eight. I remember it kind of like blacked me out for a second and I could only remember waking up and crying and just being like, where did all this pain come from? Don't ever fuck with bees or wasps or anything that could bite you or sting you. Oh my gosh. That's a lot of things. Should we get back to the story? Yeah, of course. Okay. (laughs) So, so Candyman disappears with little baby Anthony, luring Helen to follow him. She passes a mural that depicts Candyman in his mortal life as Daniel Robitaille. This is where she sees him as human for the first time, and even sees a depiction of the woman he essentially died for, who she bears a striking resemblance to. And written over the mural are the words, It was always you, Helen. So, like... The obsession is a two-way street with this couple. (laughs) Candyman wants Helen to haunt Cabrini Green with him so they can continue to feed off of the fear of the residents for eternity together. The only thing I can think about is like, why are you so obsessed with me? (laughs) So Helen overhears the cries of baby Anthony and sees that Candyman has crawled into the bonfire pile with the baby. She grabs a hook and goes in after them. Jake sees the hook and thinks that he's booked Candyman. He he rallies some boys and grabs torches to light it up. Mm. They set fire to the pyre and try to burn Candyman to a crisp so they can finally get rid of him. Candyman is here for the fire because he wants to immolate the baby and Helen, bonding all three of them as a happy family forever and ever. But Helen stabs him with a flaming stick and he burns once more. <laughs> uh, it's kind of brutal when you think about it because, like, that's how he died the first time. 
two times. Helen, thankfully, saves the baby, but gets badly burned and dies. You know what? If he didn't learn the first time, be feta. Be feta. That's what you get the second time. Don't do the same thing twice. Those who don't hear must feel. Right? Let's check this. They have a funeral for Helen, and, like, no one's there. Okay, there's, like, five people and one of them is her ex-husband's new chick. He's not even her ex yet. Oh. Because he didn't even have the decency to divorce her before getting fresh with Stacy. Oh. Trash. Trevor. There must be. Maybe he has a big brain. Maybe No, he's a fool. That, screw it, I don't care. <laughs> then out of nowhere, you see all the residents of Capri and Green show up. Jake and Anne-Marie must have gone digging through the ashes of the bonfire because they brought the Candyman's hook with them and they dropped it into Helen's grave as like an offering. So some time passes after the funeral and we see Trevor is super sad at home. Stacy's still trying to play house. It's a mess. And even though Trevor is mostly garbage, he's still upset about his wife being dead. He's only human, right? Mm -hmm. But Stacy seems to have a problem with this. She's huffing. Why? Why, Why? Stacy? Why? She's huffing and puffing, getting mad because he, Trevor's too busy crying over Helen to help her make dinner. And Trevor is woefully moaning Helen's name in the washroom. He's looking in the mirror. He says it five times. Helen. And of course, Helen appears with a hook mm. and guts our boy Trevor. Stacy walks in and finds Trevor's dead ass in the tub. Credits start to roll and we pan up on a wall somewhere in the Cabrini Green project where we see a new mural has been erected of Helen Hook. That's not her official name, but that's what we want to call her. That's what we're calling her. That's what we call her. Because, like, we're not going to call her, like, you know, like, we're not going to call her, like, Joan of Arc or anything like that. Helen of Arc. Helen of Hook. Helen of Hook. (laughs) Helen of Hook. (laughs) Done did it. Daughter. Daughter of Captain Hook. (laughs) Okay. Do we want to go through some of our closing thoughts? Like thoughts, feelings, emotional responses to the film. Like, Go for it, buddy. Well. How do you feel? How did you like watching this film? I I really dug it, okay? Because this was my first time seeing Candyman. Mm -hmm. Um, I... It was a it was a movie that I had heard of. Of course, it's kind of hard to like. It's kind of hard to be a fan of the horror genre without having heard of Candyman. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I had uh, limited expectations because you know we're coming into this whole Ghouls and Galdem experience as a throughway into exploring films in the horror genre. Um, through the eyes of black women. And mm-hmm. I feel like everything I do in life is looked at through the eyes of a black 100%. woman. It's hard for, it's hard for me to, uh, abandon that, um, perspective because it's yours. It's because it's mine. It's yours. It's woman. ours. Yeah. Like... Right. So when I watch this movie, I think about what it means for Tony Todd to be a the black lead in a horror film. What it means for him to be uh, positioned uh, against this white woman, and and what what that relationship says. Because, I mean, Tony Todd is looking pretty damn good in this movie. Uh, like, uh, it's it's uh, kind of unbelievable. It's fine. It's fine. He's delectable. And we know that Bernard Rose wanted the audiences to see him as fine. 
He wanted Candyman to be seen as a romantic figure. Yeah, it was, it was Dracula-esque kind of figure. Mm-hmm. Like, he is a romanticized figure. He's, he's lonely, he's mysterious, he knows all the right words to say to you while also trying to kiss you with a mouse full of bees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if Tony Todd approached you with a mouth full of bees, what are you doing? You kissing him or you running? I'm riding his face. Oh! <laughs> Sting. Sting. I'll get the check. Wow. I'll cut the check. I'll cut the check. Okay. That is... I wasn't expecting that from myself I wasn't expecting that from you either. That's X-rated, boo. I wasn't... Yeah. This is a family show. (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying you're running? I'm running from the bees, not from him, though. Okay. That's fine. Oh, but I think it's, it's fun... I feel like we're coming into this with an open heart because that's kind of what it is. It's like sharing the joy and the nuances within all these films and what they have to offer us and that it's telling that this is a staple Mm -hmm. and that like what time period it is and what it stands for and with within the message that Bernard Rose was saying, he did he did project it. He he showed that gentrification is happening. Like with Helen's apartment, for instance, where mm-hmm. she even says it was a project. Uh-huh. And then even in the beginning of the film, they oh, yeah. showed like the highway, right? Yeah. The bird's eye view. And that shot, that was a shot that hadn't really been uh, accomplished before uh, this before this production mm-hmm. attempted it. And what I love about that is that it, 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 it creates this like really stark image it, that draws a line between... Uh, the projects and the more like affluently developed areas in mm-hmm. Chicago. It's, it, ju- it just sets such a good tone for the movie. It's such a beautiful image to start with, right? Mm-hmm. I'm happy that there are so many. You, our, our listeners don't even know. They don't oh, even man. know. I'm happy that this is the first one that we started with and that we have so many other films to explore oh my gosh it's gonna be so exciting and when the new one comes out hopefully next year i think it's june so maybe i'll get like a birthday present the release date got pushed by covid like so many others did so june 2021 that'll be what season two three of ghouls and galdem we'll be exploring we'll be looking into uh candyman 2.0 2.0. You should watch the second one. I haven't watched the third one. But I like, haven't we'll seen see. it yet either. It's good. That's one of my favorite things about this podcast is that we're coming into this with like, you have such a expansive um, experience with horror films and like, I'm I'm a huge horror fan from afar. I'm really bad at watching movies and I was like, I, I will have a long list of movies that I want to watch cult classics. Like I didn't see Pulp Fiction probably until I was 23 years old. Yeah. I can't say that because Boogie Nights I watched last year for the first time. Yeah. I feel like we all come into our own at at whatever time makes sense for us as far as like your, our experience with, our experiences with cinema go. Because there were some movies that I saw, like I remember watching Godfather as a really young person (laughs) and Alien as a really young person as well and really enjoying those movies. Um, But but yeah, there are a lot of horror films that I just haven't seen yet. Oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. There's so many. And the best part is that like, because this is kind of what this is all about, you know, like 
these movies are there, but it's kind of like Candyman. It's like they're there, but they're in the shadows. Mm-hmm. They're like they're there, but they're just talked about in hindsight. Or like people just don't believe that these types of horror movies exist. And it's just like, I just feel like a lot of them don't get as much as appreciation or don't even know that they that they were even born or anything like that. Like even like the fact that even in this genre, because I guess it's even like with other with other movies too, is that like for Candyman, for instance, like it was a white director and a white act and a white writer. And that's kind of what some other movies within this time, like even the black exploitation time and like all these other types of things. And like, you still find that it's changing and it's evolving. And I think that's what this genre needs. And I think that's what this genre wants. Absolutely. From everyone. It's not just black people. It's not just white people. It's everybody. Yeah. But for this specifically, like we, we've been waiting and it's just like what I was telling you before that like within the last, I think it's like the last two months, like 10 black horror movies have come out and I'm just like, what is this? Like, it's just like a resurgence that like, we're going to get a resurgence and it's going to continue and it's going to die down and then we're going to, and then we're going to get like 20, 30 years down the line, then we'll get it again. Or is this going to be here to stay forever and we won't have to turn back? I hope it stays because, you know, people have been calling for representation on so many fronts for so long now. Um, And in all aspects of film, TV, radio, podcast, um, theater, we've been been witnessing the conversation, right? The outcry. Yeah, the outcry, exactly. People calling for more representation. So I I think this year, uh, these multiple movies uh, that canonize... Uh, black characters um it's just an elevation of what we experienced last year because we had similar similar thing it was the fall like three or four horror films came out that featured black characters Mm -hmm. and it was so exciting it was so damn exciting Mm -hmm. and to think that this is happening that it's happening more and more and that there are people out here who are just going to keep um contributing to the conversation is like it's inspiring, man. It is because even I think I was reading about it yesterday, um, which I didn't know Jamie Foxx's name wasn't Jamie Foxx. Oh yeah, I didn't know his name was Eric. Yeah, um, Eric. <laughs> um, but like he's he's gonna play a vampire slayer person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm is like, is that on Netflix? Uh yes, that is a Netflix movie. But I'm just like, yo. Add another one to the list. Yeah, man. Add another one. And that's the other thing that's so exciting within doing this is that, like, I already made the list, and then the cool fact about it is Ooh. that it continued. Sorry. I don't know what's it never here. stopped. That was super cool in my ears. <laughs> I tried to look up. That was the... It sounded like Harry Potter. That was The Haunting of Hill House. Oh. Another one of my favorites. <laughs> I tried to go over to Netflix to find the Jamie Foxx movie so that we could talk about it. And, you know, have Netflix preview stuff for you. There's a lot of really cool horror stuff on Netflix right now. Have you been watching The Haunting of uh, Bly Manor? I started. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm going to get annoyed with this one, and I'm going to like the other one better. You know what? It's they're not. You can't. It's because those them. kids. You're not. You can't. They can't. You can't compare them. It's they're the not kids. the same. They're not. The I same know they're not the same. Yeah. I know they're not the same. They're not but the same those, type of series. But those kids annoy the shit out I of me. I know, but that's because they're that's because they're great actors. Yeah, but that's why I also don't like the Babadook. 
Oh man, that little boy the Baba Duke. Right? I'm like, no. When he has that fit in the back of the car, holy shit. I'm like, you poor woman, and you're single by oh yourself, and you gotta take care of this child. This busted ass kid. But I will say, I like the ending. That was my favorite part about the Baba Duke yeah. was the ending. I yeah. thought that whole like serving that plate, um, in the basement. I thought that was cool. I was like, yeah. you're feeding. Are you just feeding the memory of your husband and the personification of that? And, like, it'll always be there because he's dead and you're upset that he's dead. So you'll always be feeding him. Well, it's the, like, it's the personification of depression. Right. Like, that too. That's what it, like, it's, it's, it's the managing of depression, I think, is what that movie is truly about. And when the Babadook is the representation of depression, when you keep lock it up in the basement Listen. and know how to feed it and know how to manage it. You, it will always be there. Exactly. It will always follow you. Exactly. Fuck that kid, though. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, th- th- that's the other thing, because, like, this is where I find if no matter what kind of movie or film it is, no matter what genre, um, if you can get me to hate somebody that much... You're done good. You did a really good job. And that's how I feel about Candyman, is that it has been one of my like favorite staples of horror for a very long time mostly because when i saw it when i was little um that it was there i was like black person and obviously we had blackula and all these things from the 70s but blade, like i didn't blade did that for me blade blade was it for me i remember seeing wesley snipes as blade and thinking whoa Black people <laughs> the game. And and that he's so and and it's exactly what we were talking about, like how he's so sexy and like I started realizing I'm like, oh yo, like low key because I think I remember reading it somewhere that um Bernard Rose was talking about how he kind of wanted Candyman to kind of seem like Dracula. Mm. And I definitely got that. I got, I got that, that for sure. Because, like, when him and Mina and, like, the lost love and the reincarnation of that love. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's where I kind of see, like, where my... What I think the only shortcomings of this movie is, their relationship. Is that I feel like he was so into this thought of Dracula and how him and Mina's relationship is. Because, like, in Dracula, like, him and Mina with, like, the reincarnation is that, like... She actually has more time to fall in love with him and has more time to be dedicated to him and actually outwardly says it. Mm -hmm. Where with Helen, it just seems like she is being hypnotized and is going with this thing. And also she likes it too. But like, it's just like, I don't feel anything towards it. So that's where I feel like there's just like little holes in character management. Mm -hmm. But... I hate Helen a whole damn lot. And being an adult now compared to a kid, like, I didn't like her as a kid, and I damn now don't like her as an adult. And learning all these things as being a black woman and an adult in those senses, that, like, that's what changed it for me. And also noticing that Stacy was giving Helen, like, stink eye in the classroom, that was a good thing to look out for. Like, these I mean, little nuances of, like, adult human behavior mm-hmm. have now given a whole new outlook on how I see this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I, I loved this. I loved this film. I didn't really, I hadn't seen it before. And what you were saying about like being an out, like consuming these movies as adults and some uh, consuming these movies as kids and then reconsuming them again as adults. I only had the perspective as an adult watching it. So 
when I I actually feel for Helen a little bit uh, mm-hmm. throughout, especially when you like as a woman, it's easy for me to identify uh, with Helen, especially from the beginning when she gets when she just gets dogged by Trevor yeah. and Stacy. I'm like, oh come on. And then when she gets when she gets brutalized when she visits Cabrini Green, like that's not cool. Not cool. That's not cool at all. Should have brought Mace though. Should have brought some Mace with you, but that's victim blaming, so we don't play that game. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> So, but isn't that funny though? She gaslights somebody for bringing it, then doesn't bring it, then gets murdered. That's that's true. That's just karma. Thank you so much for joining us for the very first episode of the Ghouls and Gyaldem podcast. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Ghouls and Gyaldem. That's G H O U L. Z-N-G-Y-A-L-D-E-M. Yeah, we picked a long name. (laughs) Let us know what black horror film you'd like us to review next. Yeah, slide in those DMs, send us your recommendations, show us some love, and tell all your friends about us. Ghouls and Gyaldem is a Bone Lace production in association with Two Skins Entertainment. Editing for this episode is done by Andy Dilgan and our very own Khadija Roberts Abdullah. Yeah. <laughs> and our theme song was recorded by Trombo Time.